switch off, tear down this. Welcome back to the Cold War uh, podcast episode 95. We're in the middle of talking about the creation of the Marshall Plan, Ray. Uh, Before I get back into George Marshall's uh, Carved commencement speech, I believe you wanted to tell me some stories about George Marshall. Yeah, I, I just think it's worth noting that Burns is out, Marshall is in, Marshall's is respected practically by everybody, certainly the Republicans. And I just imagine that the relationship and the tension uh, in the White House has changed significantly. Um, Truman actually wants to hear from Marshall. So Marshall, whether he realizes it or not, who is not a professional politician in a lot of ways, is going to ha- is going to carry a lot more sway with Truman than maybe Burns did at the end. But so so. Uh, Marshall comes on board as the Secretary of State in uh, early January 1947, and around that time, he he and everyone else gets a report from the CIA, and this report says the greatest the greatest danger to the security of the United States is the possibility of an economic collapse in Western Europe and the ascension to power of the communists. So again, everybody's beating the same drum, and to make this even worse. The Secretary of Army, Kenneth Royal, says, if that happens, I'm going to need a heck of a lot more troops to to keep things calm, and I'm going to need at least $2 billion more than what you've already given me. So everybody's thinking about the communists, everybody's thinking about the... um, about the cost and the potential fighting that that comes along. So if you skip to March of 1947, the foreign ministers are meeting again. You've got Marshall, you've got Molotov, you've got Ernest Bevan for Britain, and you've got George Bideau. I don't know how to say his name, B-I-D-A-U-L-T. I'm going to say Bideau because I don't know. George Bideau for France. And so, so they're meeting and they're trying to work things out about moving Germany forward politically and economically. And Marshall is getting absolutely Absolutely nowhere with Molotov. It's because Molotov was told by Stalin, Germany is not to be revived. I don't want it to revive. I don't want it to get strong again because it might come after us again, which is a reasonable um, assumption. So Marshall is just going after this guy going, we've got to do something with Germany. And, and Molotov just cuts him off. And then Molotov jumps on his own agenda. And he goes, look, we last time the leaders were together, they spoke about $10 billion in reparations for for the uh, Soviet Russia, and right away Marshall just says, no, that is not going to happen. Germany has to be able to feed itself first before we can even think about paying Russia back. That has got to be priority number one. But Molotov comes back at him, and he, and he gives Marshall his own no. He goes, look, if you're not going to give us the reparations, we're just going to keep taking stuff from Eastern Germany. If we can't get it from Western Germany, we will keep stripping Eastern Germany. And so they're at an impasse. And Marshall, being the type of man that he is, says, you know what? Fuck you. I want to talk to your boss. So he wants to talk to Stalin. So it kicks kicks forward to later in March and April of the, um, 1947, the same year. Marshall and and, um, and Stalin are staring at each other. And Marshall jumps right into it because he doesn't waste time. He's not a small talker. Small talking was not his thing. And he says, look, there's been no progress in Germany's future economic or political structure. We want to unite the German parts together so we, for, so we can 
progress this country. We can we can get them back on their feet economically, and they can feed themselves, and let's get them back into the human race. And we haven't even talked about the demilitarization treaty. Nothing is happening. There's been no progress. And Stalin comes back with, you know, hey, we need the reparations. It's fair that we get them, and we have absolutely no sympathy for Germany. They made us suffer. Now they can suffer. All that other stuff, yeah, we can talk about that, but we want this reparations, and we do not want a strong central government in Germany because it's too risky for us because we've been through two wars. So these two guys are going at each other. Now, Marshall is trying to get Stalin to meet him halfway, but it's not going to happen because as far back as May 1946, Stalin had everyone who mattered in Moscow give him their opinion, and they all said the same thing. The United States is trying to gradually draw our forces out of Germany. They want to economically dominate the continent, and when we do leave Germany, they're going to then try and push us out of Poland, and then they're going to attack us. Just like everyone else, they're going to come at us, and they're going to come at us through Poland. Poland, we can't let that happen. So for Stalin, this is Stalin's like, you're absolutely right. This is never going to happen. The United States wants to, wants to rebuild Germany. They want to end reparations and they want to use German uh, material and men to attack us through Poland. That can never happen. Germany must, Eastern Germany must always be under Soviet control, preferably all of Germany through the various communist uh, governments. In fact, he, he tells his people in Eastern Germany to start forming up their own government. The point is, this goes nowhere. Marshall comes back home, and he is completely demoralized. And for him, there is no more discussion. There is no more possible um, future agreement with, with the Soviet unions. Both sides are staking their claims, and the spirit of Yalta is dead. It is now time to fight fire with fire because we're not ever going to get anywhere with the uh, Soviet Union because they don't want to play ball anymore. They want everything on their terms. Marshall is done. And the point is, when he goes back and he tells Truman, this is over, it's different if Burns had said it. Truman probably took it from Marshall and said, okay. Well, we know what we have to do. We have to pursue some other course. Forget about the four powers. Forget about working with Moscow. We've got to pursue our own course, our own policy. And that's exactly what the United States is going to do. So what's your take on all of that then? That um, the United States uh, and, and the United States without, to some degree, Ego sees themselves as the only people on the planet that can stave off communism, that can help Britain from collapsing, that can stop France from going communist, and hopefully Turkey and Greece. We are the only ones who can do anything about it, and we should. Not because we care about other people, fuck them, especially if they become communist, but and and we don't have to go into the details of this, but there's there was a report sent to Truman and Marshall that said in the next 12 or 18 months, the amount of foreign, uh, the, the amount of American exports will slow down significantly if the situation in Europe does not change. We've got 12 to 18 months to do something or we're going to be looking at uh, inflation. We're going to be looking at recessions. We're going to be looking at massive unemployment. We've got to do something. And so, and again, not being cynical, 
and, and not having too much ego. Americans saw, saw themselves as the only ones who could do it, and they needed to do it for themselves. So the question was, exactly how should we go about doing this? How can we make sure we control everything? And how can we sell it to the American people? Um, yeah, and, and I guess this is where I've been leading to with the last episode and this episode is I genuinely believe one of the main drivers of the Marshall Plan from the American perspective mm-hmm. was saving the American economy. Yeah. But does that mean um, it's evil? Does and, that mean and, and it's gonna... bad? Does that mean it's selfish? No. And I'm not being flippant. Yes, but not okay. evil or bad. Not evil, not bad, but so and, and but selfish, yes. Um, okay. My point isn't that it's evil or bad. It's mm-hmm. that, well, you know, uh, that, it, that, that the way it's been positioned through seven years of propaganda and the way that most Americans right. still think of it today, I believe, from conversations I've had over the years, is that it was a purely an act of selfless uh, charity to the people of Europe. Right. When it wasn't that at all. Yeah. It, it was completely self-serving, wasn't bad, did good things in a maybe, or that's debatable, we'll get into that, to yeah. Europe. There's good and bad of everything. Um, but uh, it wasn't a selfless act of charity on behalf of the United States. It was purely right. self-serving, and we'll get into it in this episode. Now, um, back to George Marshall's Harvard commencement speech in 1947, if I may, or do you want to add yep. something before I do that? I, I just wanted to add one thing to, to further your point, was that in right before the um, uh, Marshall's speech at Harvard, the United States officially gives up on trying to denazify Germany. We don't have time for that. This is all about economics. This is all about politics or whatever. Let the Germans take care of themselves. Because like you were saying a second ago, if this truly was about ideals and about what was best for the humanity of the world, one of the things you would want to do was stay on top of the Nazis and make sure you prosecute as many as you possibly can and put them in jail. America pretty much just gives that up in mid-1947 and France and Britain follow suit because it's no longer a priority. This is about politics and economics. I mean, there is only so much time and energy and money that you can put into anything, and you do always need to focus your efforts. Mm -hmm. When people are starving, um, you know, maybe you need to focus on stopping them from starving. But as we explained in the last episode, the genesis of the Marshall Plan wasn't really about, oh, my God, people are starving, let's do something about it. It was, oh, my God, they're going to slide into communism and our... And, and and our economy is going to suffer as a result, so let's do something about right. it. Right. But anyway. Right. So Marshall, back uh, – Marshall, uh, George Marshall hadn't been Secretary of State long, gives a Harvard commencement speech in June. He'd been in the job about five months, six months. And um, this is where he, he first launched the, the idea of the European recovery plan. He mentions the economy, the US economy, briefly – Gonna try and find that clip. Uh, bear with me. Value of which yeah. for currencies, the continuing value of which is not open to question. Aside from the demoralizing effect on the world at large, and the possibilities of disturbances arising as a result of the desperate desperation of the people concerned, the consequences to the economy of the United States should be apparent to all. 
It is logical that the United States should do whatever it is able to do to assist in the return of normal economic health in the world, without which there can be no political stability and no assured peace. Our policy is directed not against any country or doctrine, but against hunger, poverty, desperation, and chaos. Okay, so a lot in there. I don't know if you can hear that because it's a bad recording, but he, he does mention the effect that uh, it's going to have on the US economy if they don't fix Europe's economy. Mm-hmm. Um, then he also says in that that we're not focused on any – this isn't an attack on any particular ideology. No. Nudge, nudge, wink, no. wink. Perish a thought. Uh, how's your mother? <laughs> but, but against hunger. Right. Right. Sure, sure, George. We believe you, George. Um, Now, getting back to the state of the US economy, um, as we've hinted at in our last episode, and you hinted in your intro, like Europe's economy had been destroyed by the war, but America's wasn't looking too bulletproof, partly because the European economy had been shattered. Um, Yes, they've had to cut back on military spending. Millions of people are entering the workforce and that's causing inflation to rise and larger, um, higher unemployment, those sorts of things. But before the war and during the war, uh, America was selling lots of goods Mm -hmm. to its major European trading partners. Uh, during the war, a lot of it was guns and tanks and ships, and yes, there were complicated financial arrangements for how those were paid for, but it was basically right. driving the US economy, uh, trade with Europe. Now, all of that stopped, Europe's economy is fucked, they're not going to be able to buy shit, and that's not looking good for uh, America. Uh, ben Steele, in his book, says that there was a report written in 1946 by the State War and Navy Department staff, which said the conclusion is inescapable that under present programs and policies, the world will not be able to continue to buy United States exports at the 1946-47 rate beyond another 12 to 18 months. And they anticipated Mm. a substantial decline in the United States export surplus would have a depressing effect on business activity and employment in the United States. In 1946, the GNP of the United States was already down 11.6% on the previous year, mostly as a result of the government not spending money on on the war effort. The Navy Secretary, James Forrestal, said that America's priorities in Europe were economic economic stability, political stability, and military stability in about that order. Right. Where was the starving part? Not. <laughs> nothing about the starving people. <laughs> Just oh, curious. Somebody's at my front door. Thought maybe I missed it. No, you didn't miss it. Oh. I hope um, it's not the long talker. Un- Under Secretary yeah. of State for Under Secretary of State for Economic Affairs, uh, Clayton, getting rid of the great surplus. Mm-hmm. He explained uh, in May 1947, the capitalistic system, whether internally or internationally, can only work by the continual creation of disequilibrium in comparative costs of production. Now, you have a 
Masters in Economics. Ray, can you explain to us what that means? (laughs) Uh Aha, yeah. Um, What that is, is, um, it depends on the definition of is. It is. Uh, Fuck, I don't know. That sounds like a whole bunch of hooey bluey to me. Thank you, Bill Clinton. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, He went on to say, let us admit right off, that our objective has as its background the needs and interests of the people of the United States. We need markets, big markets, in which to buy and sell. So he's basically restating what Dean Acheson had said back in 1944. The profitability of America's corporate system depended upon overseas economic expansion. Something that I've been harping on about through this entire series. Quite some time. What's driving yeah. war, what's driving the Cold War, uh, is about markets, America's need for markets. Now, Marshall and all the other advocates of, of, of the European Recovery Program were quite open about this at the time. They, mm-hmm. they spoke openly about the parallels between their policy and America's westward expansion across the continent earlier in in America's history. You know, America needed to expand. It was producing so much stuff, it needed to find more people to sell it to constantly. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought it was the Soviets who were trying to take over the world, Ray. I'm confused. Are the Soviets the ones trying to take over the world? No, let me help you with this one, my friend, my non-American friend. The Soviets are trying to take over, literally, the Americans are trying to take over economically and bring them up to our level because obviously we are God's chosen people. So it's not the Europeans. It might be the Asians, but for right now, it's the Americans. And we're trying to lift them up. So if we get in to their economies and make it like our economy, we're only doing them a service. It's it's the communists who are trying to literally figuratively, not figuratively, literally um, boots on the ground take over. We're the good guys. Okay, so boots on the ground, bad. Right. Economic boots on the ground. Good. Good. Now we are going to be raping your wallets, but that's good. You just don't you just don't see the bigger picture right now. As long as we don't have military on the streets, it's all good. Right. Then it's it's the optics good, yeah. that we're talking I, I about here. The optics. Right. Yeah. But I did want to add on to what you were just saying, because you're absolutely right. Gone was the thinking that just loaning somebody some money and hoping it would work out. Those days are gone. There's going to have to be a new integrated Western Europe entity that has to use, it has to use, it will be forced to use American ideas of business practices, American cash, American safety guarantees, which of course is the exact opposite of what George Washington told us to avoid when, as he was leaving office, but the point is, here's our money, but there are so many strings attached, you will be little tiny cute Americas by the time we're done with you, and that's the whole point, because then we will understand your playing field, and our corporations can get in there and start raping the land. Yeah, Uh, um, I think you're right. Um, That is part of the point of this. Um, Now, Marshall argued that the United States faced an either-or situation. He claimed that unless his plan was adopted, 
Mm-hmm. And here's a quote. The cumulative loss of foreign markets and sources of supply would unquestionably have a depressing influence on our domestic economy and would drive us to increased measures of government control. So from Marshall's perspective, America's expansion into Europe was the key to prosperity. And for him and his Secretary of State, remember, the key to foreign policy was economic expansion into (laughs) Europe. The survival of America's democracy was dependent upon that because if America's economy crashed again, then just like socialism was on the rise in Europe, socialism Ah. would continue to be on the rise in the United States. Right. Now, of course, as I've explained many times, there's no no link between uh, socialism and the loss of democracy, you can have democratic socialism yeah. uh, or a social socialist democracy. But, uh, you know, Mer- Americans yeah. don't think in those terms, particularly didn't back then. Um, right. So, again, so it's important to understand that from Marshall's perspective, it was absolutely life and death for America that they got to trade in a massive way with Europe as quickly as mm-hmm. possible. After World right. War II, if they failed, the American economy would tank and America would become socialist. That was his viewpoint. <laughs> you know, I think it's kind of sad that it, to me, from what you just said in the last five or ten minutes, it sounds like the United States State Department has become nothing more than a pimp for the corporations of America. Your job is to make sure we have access to markets or everything will come crushing down. I mean, what happened to the great statesmen, you know, their speeches, their idea of um, of uh, free peoples and all that other crap, which we all know is BS, but the point is we used to pretend, and now these guys are pretty much just bare bones in it. This is all about economics. This is all about making sure we have access um, to markets and to make sure that the people on the ground are receptive to that. They better not be uh, communists. And, and again, it's just, it's just come all the way around. Around, and at least now they're being pretty open about it. And you just you just uh, hit the nail on the head there. It's not enough for the European economy to recover. Right. The European economy needs to it's recover side, side and be part of America's and be part of America's trading system. If yeah. the European economy recovers, but as part of a Soviet trading bloc. That's still going to crash the U.S. economy because they're still not going to be able to. <laughs> oh yeah, it's got to all fall our way. Sell their shit to them, yeah. Right. And so it's got to be controlled by America. The in order for America to survive and prosper, they need to control the economies of Western Europe, and that's what the Marshall Plan was all about. I just want to interject some politics real quick. A couple of minutes ago, and, and this is uh, this doesn't sound important, but it will be on the tail end. Um, you were saying a couple of minutes ago that, um, that it's not like all the news outlets were notified and said, oh, you know, uh, Secretary of State Marshall, who's practically a god, is going to be making this major announcement. We want full coverage. Marshall, pretty much on his own, and I think Truman was giving him a lot of uh, headway, purposefully did not want 
a lot of the news agencies to be contacted. He said, no, 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 let's just put it out there. Let's just float it out there like a trial balloon. We're going to let it germinate. And eventually people will pick up on this. And, and, and that's exactly what happened. But there was one exception to that. He made sure the, um, the London, uh, the British foreign minister had either his words, a recording of him, or, or, or had, had a printout of his speech at the same time, or practically the same time that it was given. And someone said, look, if I give it to him now, he's asleep. And, and Marshall was like, I don't care. Wake him up. Wake him up. Because Britain is going to see this for what it is, which is a lifeline. Britain, just like everyone else is suffering, George Marshall and Truman wanted them to know what they were about to do. But here's the other part that I that I loved. Truman purposefully stepped way back from this. This was not coming from him. This is coming from Marshall. This does not have Truman's name on it, nothing. He purposefully is physically somewhere else pretending to be do, doing something else. They are using the popularity of Marshall to get this started and then to eventually push it through. Because if it's the Truman plan, it can be positioned as a, a political maneuver on behalf of right. Truman to try and make himself look an, more popular. But no one's yeah, going to an election. No one's going to accuse Marshall of that. <laughs> yes, if George, no. if it's got Marshall's name you, on it, sir. you can't. Uh, exactly. Yeah, Marshall will just stare stare at you and <laughs> your testicular fortitude. <laughs> boom. Scott Burbick, that's for you. Drink. You, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll diminish. Wither. Your testicular fortitude will shrivel up <laughs> if he stares at you. Just like a balloon. Yeah. So, yeah. so they came up with a plan. And the plan was to give $13 billion in 1947 money mm-hmm. to European countries over the next four years. So we're going to kick it off with about 4 or $5 billion, and then there'd be a few more billion made available each year over the next three years. Right. Now, they didn't just say, um, we're going to put all this money on pallets and dump it on Europe's doorstep <laughs> and go, there you go, here's the cash, like America Have did. Have a good day. Right. In Iraq, right. <laughs> in the early 2000s, literally just take a trillion dollars of greenbacks and Damn. dump it on their doorstep and go, all right, anyone who needs it, there it is. Um, this was very carefully engineered, very mm. carefully managed so it would benefit the US economy. And it had a ton of conditions. And this is the thing that I think gets short thrift in modern historical accounts of the Marshall Plan, including in Ben Steele's book. Absolutely. Uh, This doesn't get talked about enough, the conditions that were um, put upon this. And in all of the discussions I've had with Americans over the years, including my good friend, my good friend, J. David Markham, um, I find that Americans, (laughs) even history buffs, uh, uh, tend to be a little bit clueless about how this worked. And again, yeah. it hasn't really been focused on a lot. And, 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 but this is the fucking key to understanding the Marshall Plan, I think, in my personal opinion. And, I, I, and I'm going to tell you something, Ray. I did not get this from books because it's not in the books. Oh. <laughs> this, is, this is, you got it. Well, it's in one or two books, but it's not in a lot of books. Right. And, and you really have to look hard to find this in books. But it's, 
it's there if you look for it, but yeah. it's not doesn't get talked about a lot. So there were lots of conditions, but um, we'll, we'll get to those as we go. Now, the the influential British economist at the time, Sir Alec Cancross, pointed out that the US sending aid to Europe wasn't new. I mean, they'd been doing it for the better part of two years before Marshall's speech since the end of the war. Right. But what made the Marshall Plan different in Cancross's Ken Cross's perspective was that it was an attempt to link aid to the reform of European institutions. Mm-hmm. So it was ideological. We're going to give you money, but you have to do things our way right. if you take our money. After the uh, after Marshall gives a speech um, in June of forty seven, uh, later on that month, um, the French Foreign Minister Bedeau, who, who's who's on board, and, and you're absolutely right, he was saying to the other foreign ministers, "Look, anyone who wants to go along with this and get American aid, you are going to have to toe the line when it comes to American policies." And we'll get into this later. And and I think you mentioned this on a previous episode. Not only was this to to recreate to make Europe in our image, but also to make sure that the Soviet Union and the, and the countries that the Soviet Union controlled said no to this. Because you, what if they just walk up and say, that's a great idea, I'd love some money, please. The United States had to make sure that the Russia would say no, to Poland would say no, Hungary would say no, all the other countries that um, Stalin is controlling would say no. And so not only do all these conditions make things great for us, but they're also going to make sure that Russia turns them down. So it's a win-win. And, uh, and you were right, this is just an absolutely brilliant plan. And it takes time to come together. Don't get me wrong. They have to work on it uh, between his speech and a year later when this thing is passed. But they are able to hit a lot of the things that they want. And America really does exert its economic, political dominance through the Marshall Plan. And we'll, we'll sort of get explore that. and explain how that happened um, as we get go over right. it. Yeah. Now... It was designed in part to reduce communist influence in Europe, and that certainly seems to be how George Kennan conceived of the plan. He believed that the basic cause of the crisis in Western Europe at the time wasn't communism, but it was the need to restore Mm -hmm. the economic health of these countries. Otherwise, they would end up as communist. Some of them, if not, you know, more than most would. Um, And so he understood that this plan had a deeply subversive purpose. On the surface, it was positioned as humanitarian aid, but really what it was about was exerting American control over the economies of Europe uh, to prevent Soviet control or influence. Let's say influence in both cases. American influence over these economies rather than Soviet influence. Dean Acheson, who was uh, at the time Under Secretary of uh, State, I think, something like mm-hmm. that. What was his actual title? Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Uh, I've got it down somewhere. Um, uh, here we go. Uh, Under Secretary of State, yeah. Later on, he yeah. becomes Secretary of State himself. He, he, he agreed with Kennan. He said that, What U.S. citizens and the representatives in Congress always wanted to learn in the last analysis was how martial aid operated to block the extension of Soviet power and the acceptance of communist economic and political organization and alignment. Mm -hmm. 
So that's what they were thinking in terms of the planning. This is not a. Mm-hmm. This is to. It's about inserting our influence over the economies of Western Europe. Now there was a meeting um, on the twenty eighth of May, nineteen forty seven, when they were starting to pull this together, where they decided the U.S. officials decided that East European countries would be allowed to participate in the program, including the USSR. But there were conditions built into the plan that said that you would basically, if you were going to take the money, you basically had to open yourself up to capitalism and American Mm. exporters and, and oversight by the U.S. government. And as you said, it's a bit like the Baruch plan that we mentioned a while ago. This was designed intentionally by the <laughs> Americans with, in a way that they knew Stalin could not and would not accept. Right. So part of the deal was that the resources and the goods that would be purchased with Marshall Plan funds would come from the US itself. And this is the other key to understanding the Marshall Plan, the secret to the Marshall Plan, Mm -hmm. which was a new idea at the time. It was Keynesian economics during peacetime, which I don't think even many American strategists really understood. Today, it's very well understood um, in, uh, the, with American planners about how this works because they've been doing it for 70 years. The <laughs> entire US economy is built on this concept, but this is where it started, back with the Marshall Plan. Right. The way for the US to recover from the economic woes of 1947 was to create a fake economic boom, and this is how you do it, is you loot <laughs> – the American Treasury, and you give it to American corporations. Ta-da! Now, yeah, like, and this, you know, if if, if people have heard our the episodes we did on the economics of war um, early on in this series, this is this is how it works in peacetime. Um, uh, this was the beginnings of it, anyway. You basically create a situation where there's an emergency which can be, oh, my God, Saddam's coming to kill us all, right. or, oh, my God, ISIS are coming to kill us all, or Al-Qaeda's coming to kill us all, Somebody. or Fidel Castro's coming to kill us all, or Kim Jong-un is coming to kill us all, or, or whatever it is. Right. Uh, quickly, we, we, we need, to, we need to ramp up our military situation. <laughs> right. Or, oh, my God, there's a, there's a humanitarian crisis. We need to get involved right now or the consequences are going to be massive. So there's, right. there's got to be an emergency that requires American intervention. So then the government takes a huge amount of money and gives it in one way, shape or form through to American corporations to go mm. and fix the problem. Aww. So the billions of dollars go from... American taxpayers, mostly individuals, right. taxpayers, your income taxes, goes to the federal treasury, goes then from the federal treasury to the corporations, literally into their pockets, which benefits the owners and the major shareholders and the executives of those corporations who pay themselves huge bonuses. 
Wow. And that's what happened with the Marshall Plan. Let's make no mistake about it. That's absolutely what happened with the Marshall Plan. Uh, Most of the money, the $13 billion Mm -hmm. that was allocated, never left (laughs) America. It literally went straight into the bank accounts of American corporations. Right. Oh, my God. So so there was no going to the Caribbean islands or to a Swiss bank account. It just literally went from D.C. to the various major cities or corporation headquarters throughout the nation. Okay. Yes. And it boosted the economy. Oh, look, all, all this money's being spent. Yeah. Straight from the people's bank accounts into the corporations. People don't get any say on how it's spent, mind you. Yeah. It just goes straight into the hands of private companies and their owners and their shareholders. Now, <clears throat> it took some work to make this happen, though. It, it didn't happen easily. Uh, they had to sell it to the American people. And, and right. as part of that, there, was, there were a couple of different quangos, quasi-government organizations that were, were, were established in order to help design and sell this to the American people. One was known as the Committee for Economic Development. That sounds nice. This had actually, it does, yeah, the CED. It had actually been founded in 1942, towards the end of the war. It was a kind of a think tank. It's up there with the Council on Foreign Relations. It was founded by a group of business leaders. Uh, Paul Hoffman, who was the president of Studebaker Corporation. <laughs> How are they going, Dave? You, 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 uh, you got a Studebaker at home, right? I, I, I'm on my third Studebaker now. The Studebakers. Yeah. It was in Happy Days, but that's the only place I ever saw a Studebaker. It was in the TV show Happy Days. Hey. Mm, last Studebaker was uh, manufactured in 1966. That sounds about right. <laughs> they merged with Packard in 1954. Uh, I don't know what How many Packards are after around? that. Um, yeah. Anywho. <laughs> oh, yeah? I, no. I don't know of any. Uh, yeah, no, the Studebaker got out of the business, uh, yeah, in the 60s. So the CED was led by... Paul Hoffman, the president of Studebaker, William Benton, who was uh, the co-founder of an advertising agency, Benton and Bowles, a.k.a. Barry and Stan, and Marion Folsom, who was the treasurer of Eastman Kodak. So these guys understood that businesses in America had made a lot of money during World War II because of... Mm -hmm wartime production subsidies, and before that, because of the New Deal, which was another form of Keynesian economics, right? where the government spent a lot of money to, to, to bolster the economy. And they knew that uh, after the war, there was all of that, that, that those cash flows were going to stop, so they needed to figure out how they were going to replace it. Their, their businesses were at stake, the success of their businesses, their personal financial futures were at stake. So they got busy dreaming up strategies to find new ways of getting the government to give them lots of money during peacetime. <laughs> and the CED mm-hmm. was one of the organisations that massively supported the Marshall Plan and spent a lot of effort travelling around the country trying to sell it to business leaders and to politicians and to the people. Damn. Um, 
Now, there was a guy called Julius Krug, who was the Secretary of the Interior. In his memoirs, he said the Marshall Plan was essential to our own continued productivity and prosperity. He likened it to a Tennessee Valley authority on a world scale. It's if we were building a TVA every Tuesday. (laughs) People don't know, and non-Americans or Americans that are too young don't know what the TVA was. It's basically one of the New Deal uh, situations where the government threw a lot of money at building, I think it was a dam, wasn't it, in the Tennessee Valley? And mm-hmm. it was paid for by American, uh, you know, government money and uh, created massive employment and lots of jobs and all of those sorts of things. Uh, electricity generation um, for, I think, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky, bits of Georgia, North Carolina, and Virginia. I'm just pulling that out of my head. I'm not looking at that on Wikipedia, really. I'm not. Okay, I am. Um, <laughs> it was under the leadership of David Lilienthal, who we mentioned in an earlier episode. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so uh, yeah, it was the government sort of spending treasury money on modernising uh, American infrastructure. They spent, I think, uh, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe more, during the Depression mm-hmm. to, to on that project. So, um, yeah, that's how uh, Julius Krug, the Secretary of Interior, saw the Marshall Plan. It was the TVA... As if we were building a TVA every Tuesday, <laughs> taking that model right. and doing it on a world scale. But people weren't familiar with this model. It was new for America. Even the business leadership and the po- po- political leadership didn't really understand how this was going to work, so they needed to sell it. Wow. Over to you. Oh, I just wanted to mention real quick, you were talking about um, a lot of countries are going to have to give up certain independence and rights if they take American money. And you at least have to admire Molotov for saying exactly that to Marshall's face. When there's another foreign minister's meeting in June of 1947, Molotov is about to walk out because he's so pissed. He knows he's not getting anywhere. He tried the old play, you know, tried to divide uh, the French from the British and that wasn't working. And he says to America, look, this whole, these questions you have about Germany, has nothing to do with the economics, and we can't s- settle one issue until we settle this issue. And and Marshall was just bullshit. We're going to separate these issues, and we're going to figure them out and solve them any fucking way we want, and you're not involved anymore. And so right before um, Molotov walks out, he says, if we were to take any of the money, we are going to lose um, our economic and national independence to the advantage of a certain strong power, f- and just for the pretext of getting some American aid. The uh, Soviet government is in the middle of a Stalin five-year plan. So we don't want any part of this. We don't, we don't, um, we're still focused on reparations. We're going to get them one day, but for right now, we can't be a part of what you're doing. And so the Soviets walk out and they're representing the entire East Bloc uh, when he goes out. And so, as you can imagine, the relations between the United States and the USSR really starts to fall apart. And Stalin truly does believe at this point in mid-1947 that that the Marshall Plan is nothing more than an excuse and for a way to pay to keep the U.S. military in Europe so one day so they can invade through Poland and, and, and go after the USSR proper. So it, it, I think over the last probably 10 or 15 episodes, we said, 
you know, you could consider this the date that um, that the Cold War started, or you could consider this the date that the Cold War started. So this is just another one of those dates um, that um, after Molotov says that and he walks out, the British Foreign Minister Bevan says to a colleague, this really is the birth of the Western Bloc. And by the by extension, the beginning of the Cold War, because there's now a line right in the middle of Europe. So again, it's just one of those defining moments that just the two countries, the two sets of countries are just further and further apart. And it just seems less likely that they'll be able to keep talking to each other or want to talk to each other to try to work things out. Yeah, you just jumped way ahead of oh, my timeline. Dude. I've got a lot of stuff then on I'll- the Soviet thing, but... I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that in a little bit. Okay. I want to talk more about the Soviet issues and the conditions. Gotcha. But like, and you're right. I mean, there, there were major implications for the Soviets as to why they couldn't accept it. And as we said before, it was deliberately engineered that way. Um, but they weren't the only people criticising the Marshall Plan. Um, there was a lot of criticism back home. And I think I said in the first episode, there was only there's only one person from that time who was talking about it as a cash grab that I can find in the histories, and that is Henry Wallace. Fucking hell. Uh, FDR's old VP, the man who should have been president. Uh, he had the testicular fortitude. He was... Oh, boom, drink. <laughs> Henry Wallace uh, was FDR's VP uh, for the first couple of terms, uh, would have been... Well, he got he basically got replaced with Truman. But if he hadn't got replaced with Truman just before FDR died, he he would have been the president at this stage, and things would have been very different. Let me tell you, if Wallace had been <laughs> yes. the president instead of Truman. But um, Wallace was attacking the Marshall Plan uh, at the period he was gone. Now he'd been uh, uh, fired by Truman. He was running his own political party. He was making a run for president himself uh, up mm-hmm. against Truman with a, with an independent party, the People's Party or yeah. something it was called. PP. Um, now, he said that far from reviving the European economy, what the ERP would do would be to undermine the European economy. Mm-hmm. All of the things that were starting to happen there, the nationalisation of industry, social, social welfare expansion, government controls on trade, would all get undermined by the ERP because America didn't want those things to happen. Right. So he said it would be destructive to the European economy, not constructive. He also believed that the State Department in the US had been captured by monopoly private interests. Ooh. Now, this is the former Vice President of the United States saying this, by the way. (laughs) Right. And that the ERP was designed to perpetuate Europe's semi-colonial dependence on the United States. Oh. Uh, Alluding to what you were saying before, Bevan's comment about rival blocs, he said that's exactly what this would do. It would prevent the traditional east-west European trading links, it would turn Europe into rival trading blocks and would possibly lead to World War III because of the tensions that would come from that. He said that in the United States, the ERP would boost the profits of agricultural, oil, steel and shipping trusts at the expense of American workers, farmers and independent businessmen 
who would have to contend with the resulting shortages, inflation, union busting and social service cuts. And he had his own idea. He wanted to create a $50 billion fund, three times larger (laughs) than what was being suggested for the Marshall Plan, but to give it to the United Nations to spend... Um. Yeah. Who? I, what? The, the United. I never heard of band. them before. No. No. <laughs> um. Which would create a European New Deal, and he said the primary beneficiaries of the fund should be the victims of Nazi aggression, including the Soviet Union and the Eastern European states, who took the biggest brunt of it. Right. But of course, if the UN is running, how the determining how the money gets spent. Who's going to make sure that it benefits U.S. interests? So that wasn't going to fly. He um, also said that, you know, with the the conditions in the Marshall Plan that would mean that recipients of the funds had to buy everything from the United States, they were banned from buying it from their neighbours, which was going to not only damage the east-west trading links in Europe, Hmm. but it was going to destroy European competitors to American corporations. So, they, you know, after the war, you've got these weakened European manufacturers of products who are trying to rebuild, but if any money that's available is being used to buy American goods, then these European manufacturers are going to go out of business. Ah. Which means America will be able to lock up the entire continent. Yeah. For win win. You know, if if people want to buy fucking shoes, right? But they're all buying American shoes because one of the conditions of the Marshall Plan money is you have to buy products from America with it. Then European manufacturers of shoes aren't going to have any customers because <laughs> customers don't have any money. Right. So uh, you know, retailers who want to buy shoes are going to buy them from the US. So it was going to shut down European or the the revival of European manufacturers in their own markets. So even then in 1947-48, Henry Wallace could see that this was a giant scam being perpetuated by American corporations. He said that American money would just be going straight to American corporations um, he uh, under the justification of it being a humanitarian aid program, in his words. So that well, was Henry Wallace's view at the time. Yeah, no, but again, I, I was listening to the quote that you were saying, and this guy pretty much nailed it. He said it would be hostile. The you know the Marshall Plan would be hostile to the Soviet Union. Check a subsidy for American exporters. Check it would pol- uh, polarize the world between east and west. Check it the it would boost boost the profits of the agriculture, the the various trusts. Check uh, it would affect the independent businessmen in a negative way. Check. I mean, this guy just freaking nailed it up and down the up and down the line. But of course. His other problem was was that his plan, the fifty billion dollar fund, uh, the main beneficiaries would be the victims of of the Nazis. And as we're going to see, the way the money gets passed out, it's not passed out to most damaged. You get most money. That's not how it's going because again, Americans are going to take care of certain people in Europe before they take care of others. So his was there was no way his was going to be. Uh, his, his idea was going to be accepted. And, of course, if you did that, then obviously Germany would be getting a lot of money 
from his program because they were damaged more than anybody else. So again, there was no way that that was going to fly. But this guy with his list pretty much nailed exactly what was going to happen. But again, I have to say for the Americans, they're like, is that a bad thing? And and just and um, just moving on from Harry, Henry Wallace, uh, Molotov and Stalin played good cop, bad cop when all this information came out. So Molotov rails against this. He says all these horrible things. He says, look, the United States is trying to literally buy out the smaller nations. So that's bad cop. But then Stalin pretends to be open to it. He's like, no, no, let's, let's, let's hear him out. Let's, let's be practical. Let's be reasonable like I did with FDR. Maybe we could work something out. But then he hears that Germany is going to be getting some of this money, that Germany is going to be revived, and that is the goal to to uh, bring back together all the different parts of Germany. And there's too many American conditions attached to it, like the communists have to be suppressed, and we'll go into all that later. So he has to shut it down, but he at, le- at the very least, he tried his old good cop, bad cop routine, and him being the good cop, which he did throughout his entire career, but... The Marshall Plan is so skewed away from the communists and to America, there's absolutely no way that he could work with it. But he was going to try in the initial phase. So the Marshall Plan was getting attacked uh, at home, not just from the left either, but also from the right. (laughs) There were guys like the uh, Republican senator and presidential candidate from Ohio, Robert Taft. Taft? Taft, who attacked it, as well as as well as the four-term Republican congressman from Nebraska, Howard Buffett, father wow. of uh, reggae musician Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> I knew no, that. Uh, actually, knew father that. of Warren, father of Warren Buffett. Really, I didn't know until this week that Warren Buffett's father was a four-term Republican congressman. Does that mean he was born so on second or third go. base? Yeah, yeah. He was born definitely on second or third base. Yeah. Um, Now, Howard Buffett was also a critic of the Truman Doctrine. Um, He once said on the floor of Congress, even if it were desirable, America is not strong enough to police the world by military force. If that attempt is made, the blessings of liberty will be replaced by coercion and tyranny at home. Our Christian ideals cannot be exported to other lands by dollars and guns. Persuasion and example are the methods taught by the carpenter of Nazareth. And if we believe in Christianity, we should try to advance our ideals by his methods. We cannot practice might and force abroad and retain freedom at home. We cannot talk world cooperation and practice power politics. I would like to match that. Uh, just real quick, if, you, if you're going to be flippant, I'm, I've got one as well. Sen- Senator, First of all, the senators from the Midwest were not happy about this because this is not going to benefit them very much. There's not a lot of manufacturing going on. So Senator Arthur H. Vandenberg of Michigan, who runs Vandalay Industries, was against this. Uh, no, sorry, sorry, he was for this, and he was fighting uh, against the, uh, the Midwest um, um, senators. But also Senator Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., uh, the Republican from Massachusetts, and Lodge, of course, owned a hunting lodge that was burnt down by George Costanza, who used to work for Vandalay Industries. So they're all interconnected here, but the senators are going at each other. The Republicans 
some Republicans are against this, but the one thing that brings the Republicans over, and I think you said this earlier, was that there was a prominent businessman, Paul G. Hoffman, who was going to be in charge of this. And what he's going to do is he's going to put one of his representatives in every single capital of any country that takes American money. And he's going to make sure those representatives are going to make sure that everybody is towing the American line when it comes to getting this money and what they're doing with it. So this is going to make the Republicans feel better that one of theirs is in on this and they're going to make sure that everybody is pretty much becoming like like the American landscape when it comes to business practices. And that is why that is one of the, for some Republicans, the only reason they were able to stomach this because we're going to start churning out a lot of little Americas all over Europe. Yeah, the problem that the Republicans had with it um, wasn't the same as the problems that Henry Wallace had. They didn't have a problem with the aid uh, as much as they just thought it was too much, far too much money. $17 billion, which is the original amount that Truman wanted Congress to approve, about $184 billion in today's money. They said it was too much. Now, Taft was uh, arguing that giving them too much money would create a dangerous dependency on the United States. Mm. Now, it's a bit like people on the right today saying that giving poor people welfare is just making them dependent on handouts. They'll just put (laughs) their feet up and say, well, that's it for me for the rest of my life. I'm just going to take your money, (laughs) which is horseshit for the most part. (laughs) Yeah. Now, interestingly... uh, (laughs) To show you where the Democrats were at this were at at this stage, Democrats tried to undermine guys like Robert Taft and Howard Buffett by saying that anyone who f- argued against the Marshall Plan was obviously pro-communism. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. Remember that Truman, the Democrats under Roosevelt and Truman had been criticised for being too weak on Stalin and too weak on communism. Right. By 1947, the Democrats are turning that argument on the Republicans, saying, well, if you don't support the Marshall Plan, then you are pro-communist because if we don't do this, the communists are going to take control of Europe. Nice. So actually, we think you're probably a commie. I'm not a commie. You're a commie. No, you're a commie. You're a commie. You're all commies. Illinois, Illinois Senator Scott Lucas said uh, those who oppose the Marshall Plan should suffer some slight embarrassment in finding themselves in agreement with the Communist Party. Wow. So that's how one of the ways that they started to sell it. Now, we have to wrap up here, but um, it wasn't just uh, the, the left and the right or Stalin and Molotov who weren't happy mm-hmm. about aspects of the Marshall Plan. As we'll see in the next episode, Ernest Bevan, the British Foreign Secretary, wasn't very happy about it either. He just understood he didn't have a lot of options at that particular point in time, a bit like Churchill when he signed the Atlantic Charter. But uh, we will get to that in the next episode, Ray. We'll finish up our introduction to the Marshall Plan.
military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.